wrapping up several things here this morning. You might thought we, you would never, ever again see a different slide other than this, live large, Romans 6 through 8. So I thought we'd review chapter 6. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but just keep in mind as we move forward into Romans 9, just how good you had it in Romans 6 through 8. Um, no, it's, it's my personal opinion, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Um, and uh, as a part of that here in Romans chapter 8, we have been looking at how God has geared us for growth in His grace. And I won't go through reviewing all of that either. <laughs> but this morning, we look, we have the opportunity to look at how the fact that in Christ we are overwhelmingly victorious. We are overwhelmingly victorious. How many different ways do we have to describe when one team or one political party or whatnot wins big? I mean, we call it a landslide victory, a drubbing. I don't know what that is, a drubbing, a walloping. I remember that from my childhood, a thrashing, a routing. A trouncing, beating the pants off them, which I remember going along with walloping. But um, we talk about how one team walked all over the other team. All ideas for how one side wins big over the other. And we're not talking here about one side being pitted against another here. But we're talking about how we are overwhelmingly victorious. No worry of losing in Christ. All of these statements are true of us. When we know Christ as our Savior, adopted as God's children, we are overwhelmingly victorious over anything that might seem to get in the way of our experiencing His loving, saving grace for eternity. Just backing up into the context uh, that we've been looking at over these weeks, uh, verses 28 through 39, we've looked at how God's sovereignty convinces us, is to convince us of how we are geared for growth in God's grace. So reading again at verse 28 through 39 here, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're reminded here that everything that believers go through, everything that those of us who have been adopted as God's eternal children go through is leading to our being better conformed to the image of Christ. Both in our body, being glorified one day, and in our experience now of being better made like Him. We see there in verses 28 through 30 how it's God's work stretching from eternity past 
is an, in an unbreakling, unbreakably linked to our eternity future of being glorified with him. And in the midst, in the present, is being justified. And that's what God does when we believe on Christ as our Savior, meaning we set aside any hope that we can somehow be good enough to have a relationship with God in our own power or in our own righteousness. We lay that aside and we throw ourselves alone solely on the righteousness of Christ that was offered to us through his sacrifice on the cross And was proved to us by his resurrection. At that point we are justified. We are declared righteous before God. And as we see in these verses. Those whom he justified he also glorified. So continuing on. Verse 31 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not also with having given us Christ. Why would he not graciously give us all things. That goes along with it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We're reminded that your legal standing of a declared, righteous, adopted child of God in the courtroom of heaven is secured because both the chief prosecutor and the chief justice are both on your side. And fully invested in your salvation. So this leads us to the strong statements of how we benefit from Jesus' overwhelming victory. It describes us as being super conquerors. So we read in verse 35, our verses this morning. Our verses 35 through 39. It says, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now this question, who will separate us? This verb here is used only a few times in the New Testament. It's highest concentration of being used four times is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, describing divorce between a husband and a wife, that sort of separation. And that question's being asked here is, who or what experience that we go through might mean that we've been severed from our special relationship with God as our Savior, with God as our adopted Father? What in all the world that we might go through would mean that we have now been divorced from our Father. And the question is nothing. As A.T. Robinson posed the question, can anyone lead Christ to cease loving us? 
Or can anything mean that we are no longer loved by him? Can anything that we're going through mean that we would be justified in saying, surely God must not love me if I am going through this. Surely I am no longer his son if I'm going through this. Nothing, nothing would mean that is what we're being told here. It goes on in verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is a literary tool that's used in scripture and in in those days. Honestly, I don't know if it's still used today. It's called an ellipsis. And it basically means, if you imagine these, these verses as being like a double staircase with a landing at the top, like, like one side of the argument walks up the staircase, and then you have the landing at the top, and the next part of the argument walks down the staircase. And in an ellipsis form of literature argument, what's most important is what's there on top, on the landing. Okay, so in other words, Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes here where he asks the question, who will bring any charge against God's elect? I'm sorry, where he asks the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he quotes from that psalm. And then what is right at the top, the most important part of this literature passage is Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Then he walks back down the argument. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so that's just a little bit geek work there in terms of understanding the grammar and the construction of this passage. So for that reason, the main thing that we want to get across to this morning is that nothing can stand between us and the saving love of Christ. If you know Christ as your Savior, nothing can stand between you and the saving work of Christ, the saving love of Christ. Now, this verse here makes an interesting statement here. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this loved term, it's in the aorist tense. It's an act of love that stands always without time placement. And it's referencing specifically, I believe, how Christ's love was poured out for us in his saving work on the cross. Through him who loved us in that greatest moment of his love. Wherefore God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever would believe in him should never perish, should have eternal life. 
Here we're reminded of Jesus' greatest form of love, laying down his life for his friends. And we're told that through this act of love, so the context here is in Christ's loving, saving work. In this act of love, in our reception of it, we are made super conquerors. The term here is made up of the uh, the Greek term for to conquer, to carry off the victory, to become victorious. And but it's added to that the prefix "huper," which we got we get our prefix "hyper" from it. We talk about hyperinflation, or Nike has their hyper dunks. Okay, it's like beyond what's necessary or beyond comparison or beyond uh, what's expected. We are hyper conquerors, hyper victorious to come off more than victorious to gain a surpassing victory. The New American Standard says we overwhelmingly conquer. The Holman Christian says we are more than victorious. We are more than victorious no matter what we're going through because of Christ's saving work for us, definitive saving work for us on the cross and in his resurrection. We're being told that any trouble you face here in the meantime before your glorification with Christ is not evidence that God is having second thoughts about you. Nothing means that. No matter how it seems, God is still loving you, especially in that he is still saving you as his adopted child. And this is how Jesus puts it as our great Savior. In John 10, verses 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It was an interesting phenomenon due to the commitment and, and the dead set, um, uh, sold out determination of Japanese soldiers after World War II. That many Japanese soldiers in the, in the Pacific Theater, when the war ended in August of 1945 and Japan surrendered after World War II, there were many that were called Japanese holdouts. Maybe they were individual soldiers placed on a tiny island, cut off from all communication, and all they knew is, I'm supposed to defend this tiny island. Or maybe they just completely doubted the truth of a formal surrender due to their dogmatic militaristic principles. The last confirmed holdouts, this is interesting. One was an intelligence officer, Hiru Onada. He wasn't relieved of his duty. He didn't consider himself relieved of his duty until 1974. He was on an island in the Philippines and it required his a um, commanding officer to show up in 1974, 
30 years after the end of the war, to inform him, to relieve him of his duty. Another was, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Teruo Nakamara. There we go. He was stationed on, in Indonesia. He didn't surrender until December of 1974. How tragic, how sad would it have been if after Japan had surrendered, after VG, VJ Day, right? Victory in Japan? Yes. VE Day and VJ Day. After VJ Day, if, if servicemen were killed by these holdouts who, who, who weren't convinced the war was over, there's nothing left to fight for. How tragic would it have been? Even more so, can you imagine if Allied soldiers came across some of these holdouts and they started to get shot at, and all of a sudden they start wondering, is the war really over? Maybe, maybe we haven't surrendered. Maybe we haven't won. Maybe we've got to keep on fighting. Get the boats back here. I mean, how crazy would that have been? God has won. He won our salvation and glory with him as a result. No matter how, what we face in the meantime, even death is a victory. But no matter what we face in the meantime, we can trust we still participate in his victory. No matter how much the enemy just holds out, unconvinced. No matter what comes against you. So we see the loving, saving work of Christ remains. We see that believers are more than conquerors because God God turns everything, even suffering and death, into his glory and our good. Remember that from verse 28? Remember that this is what this section is about, being encouraged and emboldened by God's sovereign ability. And we're given large categories here. Remember that staircase coming up and the staircase going down from this main idea that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. And and we're given these large categories in which we're still super victorious no matter what we might face. And one of these large categories is, is the hurt from people that we might live amidst. The loving, saving work of Christ remains even amidst the hurt from people around us. That's what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Two details for you from this list here. One is these things are mainly inflicted, as I've said, by people. Secondly, as you'll see, they're in an escalating order. Okay? Tribulation is a little bit more general. It's trouble involving direct, one person directly suffering as a result of something they're going through. Distress is a set of difficult circumstances implying certain restrictions being put on a person, being squeezed, if you will. Persecution is systematic, organized 
a, a systematic organized program to a, oppress and harass people. Famine is a widespread lack of food caused by others over a considerable period of time, resulting in hunger. Nakedness would be a state of being naked or scantily clothed. Then it moves on to danger, threatening circumstances. Sword would have represented at that time death by violence or execution or the threat thereof. The idea of the death by the sword was was synonymous with something having someone having died by execution. And and, and we're, we have this psalm quoted from Psalm forty four twenty two. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The message uh, puts this as we are sitting ducks. Now this this is describes a time written by the psalmist which is not describing a time when Israel had rebelled against the Lord had walked away from him and had and thereby was experiencing consequence as a result it, it's a lament it's a cry for help from the psalmist when he's saying Lord look at the situation that we are in but a key statement that is made here is that it's for your sake. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. God's people have never been safe from suffering. In fact, we often glorify God best when we're suffering at the hands of other people. Often, This is the case, and this was nothing new for God's people to be persecuted from the early church forward. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now notice here, he's not defending God in the verses we're reading, that we're, we're looking at this morning. He's not saying... Don't worry, God still loves you. My explanation is that he's not in control of what those people are doing. So you can't blame what those people are doing on God. That's not at all what he's saying. Imagine you are an adopted child of a king. And you walk the hallways of the castle. But the king's subjects are cruel. The peasants are mocking. The administrators, the palace guards even. Sometimes it's painful. It could cause you to fear that are these orders coming from the top? You know, am I being treated this way because I've lost my privileged position? Have I somehow lost my covering of protection from the king? And that's why the peasants and the administrators and the the guards are treating me the way that they do? So you go to the king and you say, am I still your son? This persecution, it's not due to a change of your mind, is it? And he assures you, no. 
Not at all. But you're reminded, he is the suffering king. He's the suffering king. You're suffering for his name. And and you actually suffer more taking his name than otherwise. In fact, suffering is a sign of that. And one day his and your suffering will end and all the rebellious subjects will be judged. And you will be shown to be a double conqueror. The double conqueror that you are. Victorious over the penalty of your sin in Christ. And victorious over the persecution that you experienced in Christ. And the victory is that you're still glorified with him. I want to say... I believe that the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is a Western question. I believe it is a question that comes from those that have been kept from much of the suffering that the rest of the world and that historically Christians have experienced. I believe we ask that when we're out of shape, when it comes to suffering. We as Christians have been so shielded against persecution and suffering that it's not presently even a part of the normal Western Christian experience. It's certainly not our expectation. Sometimes I think that if there's any statement in the, in the Bible that we hope isn't true, it's that one that I read from 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Jesus' statement in John 15.19. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We can compare our expectations with the life of Apostle Paul and his experience where he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-28, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day on sea I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger of rivers, in danger of robbers, danger of my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. None of us would argue that the Apostle Paul was being punished for being a bad Christian. None of us would argue that God must have just not loved him enough. I think that our greatest problem is how we define being loved by God. And we've grown callous to just how loving he is to save us for eternity. To be with him in relationship forever. We want more than that. But is it really more? 
Ultimately, we're making more of lesser things. Comfort, wealth, ease, success, pleasure. You know what these turn into? When we make more of them than salvation. They're idols. And you know what a loving God does to idols in our life? He topples them for our good. To allow us to look and see, no matter what I'm going through, Lord, I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me in his death and his resurrection for me. In this state, out of love, he's going to pull them away from us so that we can see the greater beauty of our relationship with him. And the persecution from unbelievers is historically what stands ready to do this job of God's mercy. Well, secondly, speaking of Paul's experience, he shares with us his confidence. In verse 38, we see here he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. Notice that? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The loving, saving work of Christ remains even amidst the extremes of life. In verse 18, he shared with us his personal conviction about the general sufferings of life. Remember when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here Paul reaches his pinnacle of all of chapter 8, and I would argue chapter 6 through 8, where he says even more strongly and personally his, shares his surety saying, I am convinced of this fact. It's, it's written in the perfect tense, meaning he's saying, I have come through the, a process of persuasion to a settled conclusion. None of this could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's debatable whether all of the things in this list are necessarily all bad. They more likely represent the ups and downs, the extremes of life. They include things like spiritual beings, angels and rulers, rulers meaning more of demonic nature. They include whether uh, whatever might be in the present along with what you might be concerned about might come in the future. It's how... Here, that I love how it's all just lumped up in the the stuff of all creation. Anything in all creation. Take, pull anything out. You know who doesn't exist in creation? The self-existent creator. He's like, I am the only one that matters. Anything else, everything else is created. Choose any of it. Choose the devil himself. He cannot separate you from me.
What matters is our relationship with the self-existent creator and everything else is just stuff. I love what Wearsby says. He says, we need not fear life or death, things present or things to come because Jesus Christ loves us and gives us the victory. This is not a promise with conditions attached. If you do this, God will do that. This security in Christ is an established fact and we claim it for ourselves because we are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from his love. And then he closes by saying, believe it and rejoice in it. You know, the Starship Enterprise was always going into, well, I guess they still are always going into brave new worlds, going where no one has ever gone before. And somehow they're always facing insurmountable odds and barely making it out alive. Somehow they're shields. What are these shields? Okay, but they're, they're, they're there, you know, we can't see them. But their shields somehow, you know, are just about to break or they finally go down amidst a battle, you know, and, and someone says to the captain, we've lost our shields. Or you hear the voice of Mr. Scott often heard warning Captain Kirk from the engineering department. The reactor core can't take much more, Captain. I don't know how much we can take any longer. We're not like that. We're not strained. God's strength, God's grace, God's goodness, God's love poured out in the sacrifice of Christ is not strained at all by anything that we go through, not even your own sin. No matter what you face, in life or death, spiritual or mundane, in the highs and lows, none of it changes the fact that God loves his adopted children. And he will see you through to being glorified with him in his presence. Remember, that's the context here. As Jameson Fawcett puts it, thus does the wonderful chapter leave us who are justified by faith, In the arms of everlasting love, whence no hostile power or conceivable event can ever tear us. Let me say another application here regarding our tendency to justify certain things because of the circumstances we're in. We call it uh, moral relativism. Well, relative to the situation I'm in, I think this is the right thing. This throws that out altogether. No, even amidst hardship, no situation means that God no longer has your best in mind with what he has commanded you. No situation, in no situation does obedience to him and his truth no longer apply and is it no longer the best route for you to take. His path is still the best for you. It's still the most loving for you, no matter what the circumstances you might think you're in. Don't you wish to have Paul's surety? I am sure 
None of this stuff will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the surety that the gospel gives us in the freedom to live for Christ now. To push through whatever resistance is there. As another writer sums up kind of the whole chapter that we're given. Remember of being geared for growth in God's grace. He says a review of this wonderful chapter shows that the Christian is completely victorious. We are free from judgment because Christ died for us and we have his righteousness. We are free from defeat because Christ lives in us and by his spirit, lives in us by his spirit and we share his life. We are free from discouragement because Christ is coming for us and we shall share his glory. We are free from fear because Christ intercedes for us and we cannot be separated from his love. Our confident hope in God is what gears us for growth in his grace now. And it's because of our confidence in his ability to keep hold of us. This quote, four lines from a poem here. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp. Of me. That's what it's about. That's where our confidence comes from. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it's